This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode five, our interview with Tim Jobson of Predictive Health Intelligence, plus from The Vault, conversation 39.4 from season three, in which Louise Campbell, Ian Rowe, and I discuss some of the other frontline screening tests and systems in place in the UK in the summer of 2022, and take a look at issues surrounding the entire question of patient screening and bringing patients in. This conversation starts with Jorn Schottenberg asking a few questions about the underlying system. He asks whether the algorithm is, as he puts it, plastic, given that it has to exist with missing data, that what's missing will vary from patient to patient, and that the whole thing is time-sequenced. Tim explains how these elements and challenges actually work within the predictive health system. Specifically, he comments on how simply looking at ALT and platelet levels longitudinally can improve overall patient assessment by exceptionally large margins. At this point, Louise Campbell joins the conversation to commend the system and ask Tim whether there is pressure to utilize it less often in order to save money within the NHS. In response, Tim and his team are running a full economic analysis, which he is confident will prove cost savings. Interestingly, health administrators in his region seem to feel the same way, at least intuitively. The rest of the conversation includes questions from Louise about measuring impact, followed by a comment from Ewan that this approach brings value, and a closing thought about how simple the technology and process are to execute. The challenge of cost-effective screening and triage of patients who are likely to be living with fatty liver is already pivotal and will become more so over time as drugs become available, publicity ramps up, and advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis rates continue to climb all over the world. This episode explores a solution that looks straightforward to implement in places that do not have integrated patient-level electronic health data like the U.S. And the conversations cut a big idea into bite-sized pieces. So just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. The other thing that I felt interesting, and let me just recap that I understood this correctly. This is an algorithm that calculates from a number of variables it has available and even looks at, you said, slopes, you know, like I would do if I have a patient in front of me. I'm trying to pull these things together and look at certain, you know, not necessarily always the same values because I don't have them all. So it's more of a flexible or plastic algorithm, if I understand this right, and even calculates changes over time. And how do you go about technically about it? Did you know, does that require a lot of computing power? or how is that done? Tim Jobson. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It looks over time. So a typical example, we looked at the ALT chart. A patient's ALT is up for a long time and it's significantly elevated. The more it's elevated, the longer it's up, probably they've accumulated more liver damage. So take that kind of concept and mathematically, that's just the area under the line. So that's just the integral over time of, of that parameter. The other thing you might notice going into clinic is seeing a patient whose plate account has started falling. You're going to go, oh, well, there are other reasons why plate accounts, but that Actually, that's a potentially an indicator of really advanced liver disease with poor hypertension. So those are the sort of parameters that we calculated. And we actually looked at the power of those and the data we published in Washington. And looking just at the area under the ALT chart gave an odds ratio of about 18 for predicting liver disease. So extremely powerful. And then combining it with a trend in platelets, that gave an odds ratio of something like 25. So that is kind of very different from what we've been used to doing it with a single point in time. How do we do it? It's more about prepping the data for the possible range of clinical questions is not constrained. There are a huge number of questions an end user can put in. I think sort of last time we looked at well, it's about 10 to the 16 questions they can put in. So it's, it's not a limited system in any way, but the data is prepped in the way that we look at blood tests in the clinic. And I think that's the key. It's what we do with the data when we've got it and prep it so that then the queries on that data can run really quickly and generate an, a cohort of interest in, in, in seconds. Now, if 
we go up against the limitations of what the computer do, then we have a refresh process and it will do some more calculations in the background and generate more data and that could take a bit longer. But for those things that we simulated them before we got into the project and it's going to take a reasonably powerful desktop computer three days to compute it uh, and now it's returning it in three seconds to the desktop. So that, that, that's great. The approach has worked. And as I say, it's predominantly about prepping the data. The number of IT projects over the year and what's really different about this is I'm working so closely with the developers who are creating the system. So we meet every few days and each little bit that as we built it over, over the last couple of years it's been the clinical input and the IT specialists and developer building the system so that it really is honed to what clinicians are going to want to ask it. Louise Campbell. It sounds like a fantastic system and going out and seeking out patients. The one question I would have on that is we often get met, as you know, Tim, uh, and I'm sure it's the same in most medical systems, don't go looking because if you go looking, it's costly. So have you come across any barriers to actually physically going out to look for patients within the region? So absolutely recognise that that barrier. I think one of the things we're doing at the moment is a full economic analysis of, of what the impact of this system is and scale it up by the size of population you're looking at. It will have an economic impact and yes, it will front up the costs, but downstream it's going to save a huge amount of healthcare costs because these patients end up extremely sick and extremely unwell. There will be barriers to overcome. So far, we've sort of got the green light to go ahead, but we need to, as we develop the programme of work further, we need clearance to go and do that. Some of these chronic liver disease patients, when we actually look at the amount of resource they're taking, it's a very small amount of our time as a, as a liver team compared to a handful of sick patients on, on the unit with decompensated end-stage liver disease take up far more of our week than the patients coming to clinic. But yeah, we have to look at it. If we don't invest, though, the future costs are huge. And we're seeing that right now. We're seeing that a lot of the acute care crisis, sorry, feeling it in the NHS, the acute care crisis, is driven by chronic disease that has reached its end stage. And if we've been treating these patients three years, five years, ten years ago, we would be in a better position now. So now's the time to start dealing with what's coming in three years or five years, ten years' time. And right now, it feels like pushing on an open door, to be honest, and have these conversations. We've had it with our local indicator care board who effectively runs the show and commissions all the healthcare across um, our county in Somerset. Um, they are really positive about these this approach because we simply have to do this for liver disease and others. No, and I agree with you. And when we see it, when we bring people in, we often change behaviour, which stops them coming in repeatedly to hospital and healthcare costs. Is there an ability with the system to calculate later on in how many comorbid conditions that some of the patients came in with later disease? So the more advanced NAFLD and NASH, how many, the percentage of diabetes was there? What was the pre-diabetic population? Is there a, a way to look at the metabolic spectrum rather than just the liver in the assessment of the patient and those additional cost savings if we can improve diabetes and cardiac outcomes? So I think there's kind of two bits to that. Firstly, yes, obviously those those parameters are so relevant to liver disease. So that the metabolic liver disease is part of that big spectrum of disease that ends up with patients down the line with cardiovascular disease, with diabetes, with chronic kidney disease. So we brought all those variables into the system at the front because they're so relevant to our patients with, with liver disease, what their lipid profile is doing, what their glycated hemoglobin is up to and so on. So that is critical. How do we measure that impact? I think that's the second part of your question, really. How do we measure that impact going forward? That question's not, not yet answered. I don't know how we'll really predict 
that impact, just that we have to do it at scale. And we need to be identifying people much earlier in that metabolic pathway. Well, the first bit of fat storage in the liver, that's probably the start of a journey through insulin resistance, weight gain, down to diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and so on. So it's about identifying those people um, right at the front. As part of the project, we are looking at doing some modeling now and seeing what the potential impact of this, because our initial look at this is this is huge. The potential impact on, on improving health outcomes by identifying people and targeting the right interventions. And again, as as more as therapeutic agents come to market, that's going to be a really important step as well. Yeah, I would say it's not only the therapeutic compounds that are maybe not available today. I think we've discussed many aspects of this podcast that liver health has an impact on global health, quality of life, metabolic control of certain conditions. From my perspective, even if you don't have an antifibrotic for NASH, you'd be able to manage comorbidities better if you understand the cause of the elevated liver function tests or reassure that statins could be given preventing the next heart attack. There's just so multifactorial that I fully aligned with you, the strategy trying to, even in the absence of an antifibrotic for NASH, you should manage these patients. So, uh, yeah, it's a huge problem, isn't it? So the liver component of that metabolic syndrome, the, the liver health issue, often it's so overlooked. It's just accepted. Oh, your, your, your liver test will be abnormal because you've got diabetes or, or whatever it is. And what that's telling you about the person's overall health is often overlooked. So part of this will be to educate people as well. These are, this is a huge cohort of people who, who need intervention to stop them getting sick. In terms of what we can do in terms of spreading the system, one of our it's a founding principles that we will keep the inputs to the system really simple. So the data that's required really is very simple. As long as the blood tests have been done and we can extract that basic data, we can do the rest because data is stored in all sorts of different ways and there are all sorts of different areas that creep in and that can be extremely time-consuming for anybody analyzing the data, but actually we take care of that. So the principles can be taken anywhere, anywhere that can do blood tests. That makes sense. If you go out to Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, which is I think where Louise just went, you talked about having sufficient computer power to get what would take three days on your desktop to take three seconds. Now, that's not huge computer power in today's world, but it's probably more than you can summon in a decent amount of the developing world. Or is it easier to do than I think in terms of raw computer power? It's all done in the cloud as well. I think that's another advantage of the technology that we're using at the moment. So all our processing is done in the cloud. It's going to be done anywhere. It can be done anywhere in the world. We have the only issue associated with that is the security, the governance of the data. But we dealt with that because of the way that the NHS is set up and the way we govern data and the health and social care network. What we've done and the approach we've taken, I think, has meant this isn't done by raw computing power. Yeah. And the interesting to do, take the take the system we built now, put it on a desktop computer and see what it would do. I don't think it would be that slow. It certainly wouldn't be the three days. What we're doing is taking traditional desktop tools, posing those same questions of that sort of data set and they grind to a halt. That's the point. Actually, it's it's the it's the design element of this that has speeded it up far more than raw computing power. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section on the page from which you downloaded this conversation in your podcast distributor or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. I'll be on holiday next week, but Louise and Jorn will be here to look at fatty liver disease in Australia. I'll be back the following week with them. So until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you every week here on the Surfing with Nash Tsunami podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.